I'm Kim, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2016. Join us this month as we talk with acclaimed Hollywood historian and preservationist, the recently deceased Bob Richard, about his golden youth spent treasure hunting in Hollywood Boulevard's legendary bookshops. Bob was honored this past weekend when the Cinecon Film Festival was dedicated to his memory. We'll also talk with Kimball Garrett, the Ornithology Collections Manager, and Jeff Chapman, Manager of Interpretation and Training, both at the Los Angeles County Natural History Museum, about foxes, swifts, and their peculiar roosting habits during their twice-yearly migration, which have become a downtown phenomenon. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood, called Hermina between South Pass and Highland, Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine, you can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine of fabulous oddities like Rouge Hairs, Dairy, Angelus Abbey, Bob's Big Boy, in Downey Forest. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of September 2016. This episode will have interviews with Bob Burchard. Bob is a Hollywood historian and preservationist. We, um, oh, we're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to get to the rest of the introductions. Our other guests this week are Kimball Garrett and Jeff Chapman. Uh, Kimball is the Ornithology Collection Manager, and Jeff is the Manager of Interpretation and Training. They're both at the Natural History Museum, and we are going to talk to them this week about Vox Swifts. They're the birds that migrate in the spring and the fall and, and, and roost in the chimneys downtown. It's totally amazing. Kim, I put this off for a second. Bob passed recently... And we have this interview from about 18 months ago or so. And I just, I don't know, it was like right around the time we went to the monthly format instead of weekly, and it just got lost in the shuffle. And so. Right. I figured we would hold it until we had a great Hollywood episode. And, and then we lost Bob, a wonderful uh, Hollywood historian, preservationist, very involved in Hollywood heritage. And um, actually, just this past weekend, the Cinecon convention of. of Festival for Lovers of Early Film, which Bob was deeply involved in organizing for many years. Uh, they, they just had their annual um, festival, and the whole thing was dedicated to him. And I said, this is the time to publish that wonderful interview that we did with Bob about old Hollywood bookstores, which is evergreen and all the more wonderful, I think, to hear now when we're remembering just this great L.A. intellectual and uh, activist and our friend. Perfect, 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 perfect. Kim, you are, in addition to being my co-host, you are the Pishka Maven. I am, and it's true. There's this thing called the Pishka, and it's sort of a, a virtual pot that we put out in front of us when we start one of these podcast episodes, and we just say, hey, if you dig what we do and you'd like to support it, you can make a contribution through the website. We're always so grateful for the support of our listeners. It keeps us in gasoline and chili relleno burritos and other good things as we head out into the world to find a wonderful thing to 
people to talk to and things to learn about for you to listen to. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. We are grateful for your support. Thank you, Kim. All right. We have a lot of closely watched trains to get through. This is So this is the segment of the podcast where we talk about things we're really concerned about that are not topics of interviews themselves. So I'll get started. Closely watched train number one. Thomas Mann's house in, in Brentwood is, is up for sale. Palisades? Uh, Palisades? Okay. Pal- yeah, okay. Is that that border? Okay. Granted. Palisades. It's up for sale. There's talk. It might be torn down. This uh, Thomas Mann, of course, Death in Venice, uh, like really super important German intellectual who moves to Los Angeles. Uh, he's one of these great, he's one of the, he's like, like, there were like 40 great German intellectuals that came to Los Angeles in, within, in the, with the rise of National Socialism or before Bertolt Brecht. Uh, he's just like, this goes on and, uh, yeah, you know, just Schoenberg, everyone was here. Um, I think this is really, okay, so let's see, things that have happened since I found out about this. Uh, members of uh, appointed officials in the Los Angeles Preservation Wing of the government have asked me, "What am I doing about it?" And I and I I I, I really like when that happens. Uh, I I left. I walked away from the West Side a long time ago. Uh, this house is is deep in Brentwood Pacific Palisades, and I just I don't know. Um, Michael Henry Heim, God God rest his soul, really important translator. I uh, did a lot of important work on, on Thomas Mann uh, when I was, before I knew him. Growing up, he was a great mentor to me, and I remember him being involved in the Villa Aurora, okay, which is this other great German-in-exile house that um, that USC now owns, and is this great, so there, there's hope. There, there's, there's hope. Well, well there is, and, and the hope is that someone with some really deep pockets, like an institution will want to save the manhouse, as as happened with Villa Aurora. Um, the property values are so outrageously inflated now that a you know a perfectly nice modernist house that was built specifically for a writer and his family, which has enormous charm and grace, that's probably not enough for the multi-billionaires of the world now who buy property out there, but maybe someone feels strongly enough about man to make this work. We're going to wait and see. And the hope, of course, is even if the house is going to be a teardown, which is so often the case these days, um, it should be properly documented and built-ins and things should be saved. You know, there are things that can certainly be preserved even if a house is lost. And the memory is important. And it's nice that, you know, folks back east are actually thinking about Los Angeles writers' homes and writing essays about how important it is to save them. We think so, too. Great, perfect. Okay, we got to keep moving. So we're going to talk about the um, parking lot in front of the uh, subway terminal building, um, Fifth Street Hill to Olive. Uh, it, it used to house the uh, Philharmonic building that was torn down in '86, and in back of it, there's this parking lot. And this parking lot, it was part of the uh, it was part of the uh, the, tro- the Pacific Electric trolley shed. Okay, so two things here. So one, uh, there was a, a, a Los Angeles, a lorry, the Los Angeles Railroad Company, one of the yellow cars. They had a yellow car in this decre- d- dilapidated shed, service shed, that 
Metro 417, the Forest City, Forest City is the company that purchased the old subway terminal building right in back of that lot, and this, this car was put there in the abandoned shed because they thought it was neat, and now they're redeveloping that lot and they let it go, and this is the whole drama of how it has been returned. Well, it's interesting because I asked around when, you know, that Larry car was sitting there. It's a little weird to have a yellow car next to the old red car station, but, you know, I, I asked around, this is years ago, and what people in the neighborhood said was, oh, that belongs to a private collector and he's able to store it there. But once it was removed quite recently because um, now the developer that says they're going to finance the start of the Pershing Square Redevelopment Project, which is a whole other story, is building a low-rise there, flush up against Metro 417, the old subway terminal building. Um, an article was written by some train enthusiasts about the real story, and it turns out it belonged to the apartment building that's now in the subway terminal building. But they never, you know, promoted its existence or did anything, and it was repeatedly vandalized. And by the end, it was covered completely with graffiti, and it was, it was really kind of sad to see. So now it's just for parts, and the reason that we're bringing this up is that that shed is, is coming down. Demolition is happening, actually, probably as we record this. People in adjacent buildings have been taking photographs from above, showing all kinds of neat stuff emerging from the ground. It's really sad the shed came down, but... Um, you know, just last week, a, an entire staircase emerged, and its location appears to show it as being in the footprint of the old Philharmonic. In fact, it might even be part of the previous building, Hazard's Pavilion. So it's some, some pretty cool excavations. I, I'm sure they have archaeologists on site. You kind of have to when you're working downtown, and hopefully some interesting things will be preserved. We'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, we're just relying on nice people leaning out of office building windows with their high-powered cell phones and taking pictures and sharing them on social media. And we shot some video of the beginning of the demolition of the shed, which you can find on our blog. Yeah, we, 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 we like social media. We'll leave it at that. We are going to include in the hyperlink section, Kim, you did a great little blog post. It's not a little blog post. It's pretty lengthy. Uh, you, did, you did a nice blog post about this demolition of the Pacific Electric uh, service shed, and so we'll we'll include that. All right, we got to keep we got to keep moving. Let's let's stay downtown. Um, downtown community plan. Okay, really important. Um, uh, we'll post this. Go check it out. Bradbury Building, October third. Uh, planning department has put the finishing touches on the. On a relatively final draft of the downtown development plan. Um, so, what is that? So, so in 1964, Calvin Hamilton becomes the planning director for the city of Los Angeles, and he implements. And state law soon concurs <laughs> that this ever, that the city of Los Angeles and every city in California needs a general plan, and these general plans will be enhanced by the, the neighborhood plans that every neighborhood will get a plan which plugs into this general plan. And so in modern planning in Los Angeles, the neighborhood plans is, 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 are super important. Okay, anytime you read about Robert Silverstein suing a developer because a community group is upset about something, the neighborhood plan is part of this narrative. So downtown's getting a new neighborhood plan. Everyone should go. Everyone who cares about downtown should make some time Go follow the link. They'll have a couple other viewings, but they're going to put it up at the Bradbury, at the Bradbury on October 3rd. Okay, so 
You should go. Really important. Do you think that'll be on the ground floor or maybe a little higher up in one of the offices? That could be an exciting thing to go and see just for the building. Sure. People should Okay, you should go. Bradbury's great. Kim, our uh, our buddy Betty Markoff turns hundred turned hundred last week. Betty uh, Ju- Judith uh, Be- Betty's daughter Judith uh, started Gorky's, right? Judith is great. Uh, Betty's great. Maury is her husband. Betty turned hundred. Maury, her husband, is hundred and two. Uh, we interviewed them a couple years back on this podcast. Um, I love them. They're a very cool couple, and they're proof positive that. You know, Bunker Hill is kind of a good place for older people to spend their, um, you know, slower years, let's say. Golden they, years. Golden, eh, I can't say that. Argon years. Anyway, they, they, they live in the same building as their daughter. They go out and have adventures. Um, Maury's a folk artist. That's how he got on our radar. We think they're just absolutely delightful. And with, uh, boy, 202 years between them, that's a lot of wisdom. You might want to go back and listen to that podcast interview. And happy birthday, kiddo. Yeah, I think um, you know. I think what it was 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 we we'd reached out to Judith to get the Gorky's history, and then um, and and then like four months later, reading the downtown news, and I'm like, I think Judith's dad like builds folk art out of salvaged air conditioning and refrigeration units he had from his forty years in the business, and you said. I said, yeah, let's go and hang out at their house and see their stuff. And it was really fun. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're a very sweet couple. He's got some cute little gags about their marriage that remind me of my grandparents. Like, I picked her because she ate the least of the girls who were sitting at the table with me. That sounds like my pop-up. Okay, they're great. Um, Kim, you did a nice blog post about this this forgotten health clinic above the Dutch chocolate shop. Before we, we say any more, this is a site, this is a location which is not open to the public. Just We're just going to put that on the table. So if you read this blog post and want to figure out how you can find the health clinic, get on our mailing list. Yeah, urban explorers, please don't try. The building is a historic landmark. It's It's well protected for that reason. At some point, we hope to be able to bring people in. But in the meantime, you know, I documented it because it's amazing. I mean, the Dutch chocolate shop itself, the Ernest Bachelder installation, which is just over 100 years old, created for this um, basically like an ice cream and soda parlor that served hot chocolate. It's a suite of unique murals on Dutch themes surrounding the entire um, interior of the space. You're completely covered with these magnificent Bachelder tiles. It's very, very special. And I finally got a chance now that the building is uh, no longer used for storage, top to bottom, to explore the upper floors. And when I did, I uh, found at the very top this this kind of quack health clinic. Um, I documented it with photographs. I found enough written material left behind from the clinic operator to be able to trace the story of this Dr. A.W. Van Lange and his interesting procedures involving getting everything out of you as fast as possible through a mixture of laxatives and hot towels and lots and lots of tubs and tubes. You know, it's the same old California thing. But he was doing it in the 1930s in this space, and uh, the time capsule 
remains. He seems to have left it in the early 1960s. So if you go to our blog, you can see some photographs of this uh, Vienna Health Clinic and read about his somewhat checkered past. He's a very mysterious character, a real classic Californian, and I'm so happy to also be able to say that there's even a little bit of a crime story. A little twist involving some shoelaces. So check it out. Um, and if you want to see the Dutch Chocolate Shop, that's a place we go to on our Lowdown on Downtown tours a couple times a year. And who knows, maybe we'll, February will probably be the next one. And who knows, maybe we can get you upstairs. So stay tuned. Okay, great. So so we have um, we have two more Downtown Watch Trains, and we're going we're gonna to start with, continue with the one that's not going to make you jump up and down and scream and throw things at me. So we were just, we're happy to announce that Tale of the Pup is coming to the block. The block is on 7th Street at Hope, between Hope and Flower. It's the old giant Macy's compound, which Wayne Ratkovich and others have joined forces to cut up and open up and tear apart and revamp as the block, and they're bringing in Tale of the Pup. Yeah, this is yeah kind of bittersweet, to be honest, because the Tale of the Pup story has been a long, weird one. It's a programmatic building, a mimetic building, shaped like a giant hot dog in a bun. It used to be out on La Cienega. They lost their lease on the property. I mean, this goes back to the 1940s. They lost their lease at the very end. They were on San Vicente, and then eventually it... Um, you know, went into storage because they were no longer able to be out in the old neighborhood. But the, always the family that owned it promised we will try to bring it back. And they got some partners recently, and they, like, shipped it out to Las Vegas. Uh, Alison Martino of Vintage uh, Los Angeles fame has been tracking this. She's had a lot of inside access to this whole restoration process. People were super excited. They're going to bring the dog back. Um, but then things got really, really quiet. There were rumors it would go into the block. The block is, um, you know, kind of this brutalist uh, mall that they wanted to open up. And it's, it's been very time-consuming of a process. And, you know, they haven't really gotten a lot of the leases they wanted. So a lot of the excitement about the block is also kind of dead down. And still, no giant hot dog. And then just in the last week, the news came out that um, the dog was, in fact, going to the block. Uh, the reason that's a little bittersweet is that the promise uh, had been that the original building was going to go back to La Cienega. What's going back to La Cienega is a uh, food truck that's painted with a new logo. It's kind of it's not a very good looking cartoony logo of the tail of the pub. So yeah, whatever food truck. Um, the buzz about initially about what was going to go into the block was it was going to be a replica. And a replica is not exciting at all. You know, you can replicate the tail of the pup as many times as you want, as long as the original is somewhere, and you can go and get a hot dog there. Then you can have as many replicas as you want in food trucks. So what? So that is no longer apparently the case either. Um, okay, we're gonna oh, I, I, I am wrapping it up. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, you, it's like trailing social media, what people choose to say about their businesses. The point is, um, from going... Initially saying it's too hard to take this old programmatic building and bring it back online as a functioning food service business. Um, we're going to just build replicas. Now on social media they're saying we're actually going to bring the vintage hot dog shaped building back. Alan Hess is not super happy with the renderings of where it's going to go because it, although it's on the outside of the building, it's kind of tucked into an architectural space. 
But what can you do? You know, at the end of the day, it's not 1940 anymore, and there aren't giant open spaces in Los Angeles where you can plop one of these buildings down. I think any opportunity to bring one of these programmatic buildings back and get people excited about it, about its history, its importance in L.A., and just the legacy of these family businesses is a good thing. And the story, which isn't always a happy or a straightforward one, is part of the narrative. So we're happy that Tale of the Pup's coming back. We don't even eat hot dogs, but we're happy. And maybe the tamale will be next. Okay, great, Kim. So we, we, so we have two more closely watched trains. Second to last one is downtown. It involves Angel's Flight. Okay. You may have seen some weird art around downtown. You may have seen some sculptures of, of people who are like... Uh, swimmers down in Lake Schwarzenegger where they've since built the new courthouse or you may have seen uh, silhouettes of cats on top of buildings like behind Clifton's cafeteria a lot of these neat pieces are created by um, a street artist named Wildlife no one really knows who this wildlife person is could be an animal um, there are cats. they could be cats uh, but Wildlife has now turned their eye uh, his eye, I'm going to say, to our dear friend Angel's Flight Railway, the stalled funicular. Uh, the stalled funicular there on Hill Street, uh, leading up to Bunker Hill. And so if you happen to go to the bottom of Angel's Flight, and we are, of course, representatives of the Angel's Flight Friends and Neighbors Society, the, the Angel's Flight fans who advocate for its return to service, hint, hint, Mayor Garcetti, um, you will see a very official-looking plaque that appears to come from the National Park Service or some associated entity with an image of a California condor and Angel's Flight Railway. And above it is a very naturalistic but kind of cartoonish-looking lady condor who's looking at Olivet and Sinai, the funicular cars, stalled up there in the middle of the track. And it says, basically, that... Um, the condors were very near extinction, but they've been brought back, and they are protected. And here is a extinct conveyance that carried people who don't exist anymore up to a neighborhood that doesn't exist anymore, and tourists are strangely fascinated by it. And the message of all of this is, all is not lost. And that is a message I really needed to hear, because... Just the day before this piece of art went up, someone posted something awful. You threw, you threw something at me. Wow. Well, uh, this, you know, I get updates when Angel's Flight gets a new review on Facebook, and someone was talking about it being used as a shooting gallery, a dr uh, uh, where people are, you know, climbing into the cars and using drugs and and a toilet. And this is just a horrifying thing. It's the last large relic remaining of Bunker Hill, and. When I hear things like this, when I read them on Facebook, I remember that the castle and the salt box, the last two houses from Bunker Hill, which were owned by the Patterson family, our friend Gordon's family, were moved to Heritage Square. They were to be preserved. They were landmarked by the city, and no one took care of them. And vagrants went inside them and set fire to them, and they were destroyed. And all that remains now is a few pieces of wood and, and, and the front doorknob. And I do not want that to happen to Angel's Flight Railway. So hopefully people will be dropping by to take a look at this cute condor and take its pictures. And a few more eyes will be on the street. And maybe some of our civic leaders will take a little responsibility. Because, listen, I love hobos as much as the next guy. There's a lot of hobos hanging out at Angel's Knoll right next door. Hobos, please, stay off Angel's Flight. There are other places you can go and do your thing. And you're not going to be damaging a landmark. Please, 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 Angel's Flight, all hope is not lost.
Thank you, Kim. All right, we have one more closely watched train, and we've got to get this on the table because, of course, this will be the subject of a podcast interview soon because, of course, it will be a stop on my birthday bus this year. So, the Hot Cha Cafe has reopened. Our good friend... Uh, it's finished. It's f- you're right. Okay, sorry. It's, it's, they've finished... Con- okay. Our good friend Katie, she runs We Are The Next. They're a nonprofit. They're involved in preservation and outreach and education about preserving the past through architecture and outreach to children as a vehicle for this. Okay, so they worked with the owners of this old programmatic structure in the shape of a coffee pot. Okay, it's in Long Beach. It's on 4th Street. It's totally amazing. I think it's last use before before we are the next, took over as construction manager and remodeled it. I think its last use was that of a medical marijuana dispensary. A failed one? I mean, who opens a medical marijuana dispensary and doesn't stick around for a while? I guess that's how it goes. And before that, it was a barber shop. It was a mess. So, so it's a giant teapot. <laughs> and, and they've restored it. And I don't want to dwell on this because we have to keep moving. And we're going to next month interview Katie because because of course Katie's going to get on the birthday bus in November because we're going to go to the hot shop. So I just just wanted to get this on the table and and next month we'll 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 explore this in depth. So so Kim we are done with closely watched trains for the month. Okay, there's a lot going on. Does that mean the hot shop's the caboose? Hot shop. Okay. Kim quickly events. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to let you pick up the Pereira CHC landmarking meeting, which is coming up on September 15th. I'm going to let you do this, then I'll bring it on home with the salon and walking tour. Okay. Well, we've been doing a number of events surrounding the architecture of William L. Pereira, the once lauded and now largely ignored um, city planner and large-scale civic architect. The Metropolitan Water District compound that he designed between 19... well, that he built between 1963 and 73 at 1111 West Sunset and adjacent structure, is in danger. And so it has been subject to a landmarking nomination. Uh, last month we did a talk there at the adjacent building, the Elysian, which has been fully restored. That building is protected, but that's the high rise. The low rise is either going to become a landmark or it's, become, it's going to become landfill. So on the 15th of September, the Cultural Heritage Commission will have their hearing and make the determination, having walked through the site and heard from both sides, heard from uh, Jenna Snow, the representative of the developer, who had a lot of uh, reasons why, in their opinion, the building is so badly altered and damaged. Some of that damage, of course, happening just in the last few months by this developer that just bought it, that it cannot be suitable for a landmarking, versus uh, what Yuval Barzemmer, who restored and owns the adjacent high-rise building, was saying during the walk. He's the uh, person who nominated it for landmarking status. He says everything that's been done to this building is uh, reversible or it's external. The bones of the building are still great, and this is a very important building from the very year that William Pereira was featured on the cover of Time magazine, which very few American architects have been. And, And this important relic, this important site, from Los Angeles water history deserves to be saved. So we don't know exactly what time during the day that hearing's going to be, but if you RSVP on our website, we should know a couple days in advance. Well, because the the Cultural Heritage Commission is being a little loosey-goosey about the time. Maybe when they saw 100 people show up for the walkthrough, they thought, hmm, 
Maybe we don't want 100 people to show up and talk at this hearing. It is a bit time-consuming. You can also sign a petition. You can send a letter. And, and we will let you know as soon as we can. We'd love to see some members of the public down. And there were such eloquent statements uh, at the little loose meeting that happened before the walkthrough. About a half dozen people were just, uh, you know, they didn't know they'd have an opportunity to speak, but they did. We videotaped um, that portion of the walkthrough as well. And it's just great to hear what people think of this building, both architectural historians and members of the community. They feel very strongly, even in its rather altered and sad condition, that it has something really special that deserves to be preserved. It's uh, such a prominent, wonderful site right there overlooking downtown. Good. Thank you, Kim. Okay. Last two events. We're back with our monthly Sunday salon. I guess that's we've been back for a while. We are back. We're at Grand Central Market last Sunday of every month. This month, September, is the ukulele. That's right. Sunday, September 25 at noon. The ukulele in the basement of Grand Central Market. Songs and, cr- and crafting. That's right. Songs by the ukulele and crafting. And cartoons. And cartoons. And they've got a, a new... Big screen monitor, big a large monitor. They just put up, so we're gonna. I think we're gonna plug into that. So I'm super, super excited about all of this. Following the salon is a sold out walking tour I'm giving about old jails. Uh, I guess because I brought it up and it's my tour and I really love it. If you want to get on the waiting list and see what happens, I'm gonna be very proactive with the waiting list about a week out. I'm gonna be very proactive with the people signed up and cancellations. So. If you really want to get on this tour, get on the waiting list, and we'll we'll see what happens. I can't promise anything, but uh, it's my tour. I'm really happy. It's a nice problem to have that your walking tours are packed. Yeah, it is. I'm proud of you. All right, we got to get to these interviews. Okay, so two sets of okay. Uh, we're going to interview Bob first about old Hollywood, so we'll introduce him second. Okay, so our our second interview today is with Kimball and Jeff. Kimball is the Ornithology Collections Manager, and Jeff is Head of Interpretation and Training. They're both at the Naturalist Museum. We're going to talk to Kimball and Jeff about Vox's Swifts. Okay, Vox's Swifts are these little birds. Kim and I'll let you tell us, Kim, about some special attributes. They have these little birds that migrate to the south in the winter and to the north in the summer, and they like to roost in giant chimneys, uh, of which there are a number along Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. And um, so I've always been fascinated by them, and I'm, we're, we're working on the guidebook, and I came to the entry on Hamburger's Department Store, Broadway Trade Center, and every entry has to have this great, engaging narrative. And I was just like, this is the building where the Swifts used to roost a lot, until they, they covered up the chimneys. So I just reached out to Kimball. I was like, we should do a podcast about Vox's Swifts because I want to get want to get everything right. I need to now know everything about Vox's Swifts in downtown for the guidebook entry. So, so that's how this all came to be. And so we went down to the ornithology collection and spent spent about an hour with Kimball and Jeff. And the result is this this twenty five minute interview. And it's really pretty much everything you ever want to know about Vox's Swifts and their migration through Los Angeles and and the chimneys they like to roost in along the way. 
And, and I got a chance to go into the ornithology department and actually watch some very delicate ladies taking the skins off oh, of... Wow. I, I actually got a little unnerved. I've, I've been in the city morgue, and this was a tough thing to look at. The county morgue. County morgue. They were, they were skinning them so beautifully. They were a little bit frozen, so it was easy, and they had tiny little needles and, and blades. And Well, in any case, it is unnerving to see a little, little meat puppet bird in someone's hand. But we also got to see some of the slide-out containers containing birds that have been collected over many years. The, the swifts are so interesting. I mean, they're lovely to watch fly. I, I love to watch them dart around and eat bugs in the dawn and the dusk. But um, even beyond that, you know, they adapted to city life, and they like to go into these chimneys, and redevelopment has thrown a bit of a wrench into that because some years they come back, and the chimney they were using that was derelict is now, you know, surrounded by a very high-end apartment house and they're no longer allowed inside and that's super sad but before there were big chimneys in downtown LA they were in big hollow trees that were along the river you know they they're a lot older than we are and this is really a place that they call home and one was placed in my hand and I was able to see how they managed to do this and I had no idea how, how they managed to roost in these trees what they have is these razor sharp back feathers on their tails that um, come they're, to... They're, they're, they're not feathers, they're like extensions of their back. But well, they're, they're yeah, weird. I mean, they're very special. They're a long, pointy sort of needle with a feather-like uh, accumulation along the side, and, and they, they basically just, you know, they're like a golf shoe on the back on their backside. They just jam themselves into a little bit of the mortar there, and, and I guess they hang on the sides of the insides of these chimneys like a whole bunch of bats. It's just wonderful. I wish I could get inside and hang out with them, but in the absence of that, you'll just have to listen to this interview and get the picture. It's pretty cool. And so just just to put everything on the table, because I like to put everything on the table occasionally in these introductions to these podcasts. So, you know, the Vox's Swifts are so important to me because, because you know, this the, the image of these... And, and, and when, they, when, they, when they roost in these chimneys, there are just thousands of them circle around these chimneys and then go down and then in the morning in the dawn they circle and circle and circle as they leave like smoke yeah okay so this is this is downtown for me right i mean these are the souls like when clifton's cafeteria closed it closed around the time of the vox's swift's migrations and and you know kim you and i stood there and and watched clifton's close and 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 it was around the time the Vox's Swifts were there, and I just thought that's where all it's like the souls of, of old downtown. They're just they're just circling, and then they're going away. And they'll come back. Yeah, they they I I, I believe they will. Yeah. So, okay. So the uh so that's that's our second interview. Okay. So that so we put it on the table. So there we go. Bob, we're going to talk with uh Bob, and Bob's just like. Bob was the man. Uh, he was a cataloger at the American Film Institute. He wrote a number of histories about early cinema. He was he was the guy at Cinecon, um, this early cinema festival, which is decades old, is a staple. Um, not a lot. Uh, he's he, he's he's it. Uh, he he died not too long ago. It was very sad, and I'm. It was feeling a little anxious, like. After he died, I was like, oh, God, we didn't publish this interview. But then the, the, the news that Cinecom was being devoted to him, I'm like, oh, yeah. So it's good. I'm really excited. It's a great interview. Uh, he talks about 
Let's see, he talks about Stanley Rose's bookshop, the successor to Stanley Rose's Larry Edmonds. He talks about um, well, Giddle. What? I mean, what, what he's talking about is, is the early Hollywood bookstore culture, which yeah. is where all of the intellectual screenwriters and novelists hung out. So when, he, when Richard says Stanley Rose, he's talking about a place where, um, according to legend, Raymond Chandler you know, wrote some of his earliest long-form fiction in the, quote, back room, which I'm convinced was a side room, next door to Musso and Frank. These are very important places, and, and I was lucky enough as a young person to kind of come on to the tail end of Hollywood books culture. And I remember you know, going from store to store and digging through stacks of ephemera, and Bob was doing that 30 years before I was, or 25. So he was very lucky. He has a wonderful collection. And uh, I think as you listen to these stories, you'll really get the sense of what it was like to go treasure hunting on Hollywood Boulevard. I, I loved sitting in on this interview. It was all I could do not to just burst out with expressions of glee and jealousy throughout. So I'm glad we can finally bring it to people. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've never actually quoted a part of an interview before we play it. But but I am. Um, I'm paraphrase it. So, at some point in the interview, I say to Bob, because the real point of this interview is, you know, old Hollywood. Like we need you to give us a sense of this this lost Hollywood because Hollywood doesn't exist anymore as we know it. And I say to him, so what's like quintessential old Hollywood, like the Hollywood of your youth? And there's this pause, and he says. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, it was like a Saturday afternoon. I was like 13 or 14. I was walking around Hollywood Boulevard, and I see my uncle in a Roman centurion costume in a cafeteria off of Vine, because he's, he's on a break. He's an extra, and, 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 and they've got a long break, so he went to go get something to eat. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's old Hollywood, yeah. So let's take it away with my interview with Bob. Bob, Bob, I'm here with you. We're at AFI, the American Film Institute, a, uh, an institute I haven't been in, in, in a while, so I'm really happy to be back up here. We are going to talk, I, I need you, before we get started, to properly introduce yourself, and, and then we can jump into our topic at hand. I'm Bob Burchard. I'm the current editor of the American Film Institute catalog of feature films. I was for many years a film editor. Uh, and I've also been a film historian and written a number of books and articles on films such as Cecil B. DeMille's Hollywood, King Cowboy Tom Mix in the Movies, uh, Early Universal City, and Silent Era Filmmaking in Santa Barbara. Wow, yeah, okay. So you're well qualified for the subject at hand, which is the Larry Edmonds Bookshop. This is uh, this 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 bookstore is still in existence, thank goodness, and we agreed we would just get started with you telling us about um, the first time you went there. Well, I first I first became interested in in early films when I was eleven years old, and I saw the David Wolper TV special Hollywood: The Golden Years in the fall of nineteen sixty one. I remember the first time I discovered Larry Edmonds Bookstore. I was a bookshop properly. Uh, my mother, who had grown up in Hollywood as a teenager, um, took me to Musso and Frank's, and I was 13 years old, so this would have been in 1963. And we were probably going to the Vogue Theater for some film, uh, and we were walking along the opposite side of the street, and came, I came upon Larry Edmonds' bookshop, and I was interested in movies, and I saw all this. At the time, uh, there were all these... Uh, 
equipment in the windows, uh, zoetropes and, and projectors and cameras and, and things like that. And also, um, you know, stills and posters and, and um, trade magazines. I, I was attracted to um, orange-covered uh, <laughs> issue of um, uh, motion picture news from 1918, which they wanted $5 for, and I went in and bought it. My mother, of course, chastised me for um, wasting my money on, or wouldn't I find a better spend it on something else? But uh, I should have followed her advice, but I didn't. <laughs> Okay, so so that that's that's a very good introduction. I think at this point we're going to have to back up maybe a minute, a second or two, and tell us um, how this what is what is now a venerable Hollywood institution, how it just sort of came into being. Well, Larry Edmonds Bookstore. Again, I keep saying bookstore. It's officially okay. Larry Edmonds Bookshop. And let me say that again, too. Larry Edmonds Bookshop. So we now get it straight for the rest of the interview. Um, was, uh, is one of the oldest bookstores in Hollywood. Now, there were a number of venerable uh, bookstores. Roman certainly predates it by a number of years. But uh, it was founded in 1938 by a guy named Larry Edmonds. There actually was a Larry Edmonds at one time. Um, he had worked for Stanley Rose at the Stanley Rose bookstore. Um, um, Rose's shop closed in the early 30s, and the the back room became the back room at Musso and Frank's, where the writers all met. Um, uh, back in... Um, the day Musso's, in the days of Stanley Rose's bookshop, would have been next door where the Vogue Theater right. was, uh, moved to its current location in 1934. And um, uh, anyway, I don't know what Edmonds did between the closing of Stanley Rose and opening his own store, which was, um, if I can use my crib sheet oh, here. Yeah. Um, it's 1603 North Coenga Boulevard. Okay. So and, that's, that's uh, <coughs> end, end of the 1930s. Yes. Okay. And um, the shop was at that location until 1954. Um, I don't know what, I, I presume it was primarily a general interest bookstore, yeah. uh, because when I started going to the shop in 1963, although they had started on their movie specialization the whole West Wall was covered with dramatist play service plays. Edmonds was the the um, West Coast representative for dramatist play service, and the East Wall was covered with religious and metaphysical books. So there were there was a counter in the back where you could ask for stills. There were certainly historical film books and magazines. But in the early 60s, there weren't many current film books. Uh, that wave would come a few years later. I can think of things like uh, the movies by Richard Griffith and Arthur Meyer and uh, the movies in the Age of Innocence by Edward Wagenknecht, but uh, the, the, the tidal wave had not started yet. And, and from, from what I understand, um, Larry McMurtry was the one that really got that started by 
buying all the the, the non-film titles in the late 1960s. Yes, yes, he he came in. He was a at that time a book dealer, and and uh, I guess you know just cleaned the stuff out. Um, the although Larry Edmonds' bookshop has been around since 1938, Larry Edmonds himself. Uh, bumped himself off in 1941. Um, he stuck his head in a gas stove and uh, supposedly left a note saying, if you think this is easy, you're crazy. Um, he left the store to Milt Lubavitsky, who was his employee, uh, and then Milt lost the store um, to a woman who was resentful that she hadn't inherited it. Um, then, uh, later in the 1940s, uh, Milt had married Git, uh, Lubavitsky, and, uh, using her father's money, he bought the store back, and, um, uh, that's basically how the Lubavitskys became part of, or became the owners of the store. Milt brought in his brothers, Din, and, um, Excuse me for a second. Um. It's okay if you don't remember. I'm just saying it's brother. Where's the book? Uh, the cinema catalog? Yeah. yeah. How did the woman get the store away from you? Um, I don't know. Women can do things. She probably filed a motion in county superior court. Maybe could find it. Yeah. I think I think they got married and then she divorced him and took it. Oh, yeah. That that, that's that's a motion in county superior court. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, Milt then brought in his brothers, Din and Phil. Uh, and, and uh, they formed the core of the uh, staff. They did have employees, uh, but not many through the years. Um, and um, uh, so they moved to their new location on Hollywood Boulevard, which was at 6658 Hollywood Boulevard in 1954. Now, there's a Arthur Gwynne Geiger element to um, the Larry Edmonds story in that uh, if you've read uh, The Big Sleep, um, the um, Milt was caught and arrested for selling porno out of the back of the shop. <laughs> and when he got out, uh, especially I guess since it was her father's money that was uh, get... Uh, from what she told me, laid down the law, and and they got out of, or he, she forced him out of that endeavor, um, and she uh, was the one actually who had the first idea of of putting together a, a list of movie related books. And this would have been in the nineteen fifties. Right, and, and let me let me interrupt you just to get us on the track. This catalog that's sitting in front of you this this is really her her baby. Yes, although I, I would say that 
Milt was solidly on board. Okay. He believed that there was a potential for a growing market. I mean, he went around the country at the time and bought up every copy of the two-volume um, uh, A Million and One Nights that he could find, so that if you wanted that book, you basically had to go to Larry Edmonds' <laughs> bookstore, bookshop to get it. Um, and um, he he believed long before anybody else, and they both did, that, that, that there was a market for cinema memorabilia and books related to films. Um, and as with many of the Hollywood bookstores at the time, uh, Pickwick was the big uh, general bookstore. Uh, later on, Hollywood Boulevard became a mecca for used bookstores, um, collector's bookstore, um, uh, John Gentleman's uh, shop, I can't remember the name of it now, but there, were, there was a time when there were eight or ten Gilbert's bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And as happened at various times through the years, if you're a book collector, you could go to one street, go up and down the street, and, and see every bookshop in town. Uh, later, that moved to Westwood Boulevard, and and later elsewhere. But it's it's pretty much gone now. Yeah. The few remaining used bookstores are scattered all over the place. Um, but uh, uh, so there was this perception that there would be a growing market in in movie-related books. Um, to that end, uh, Larry Edmonds' bookshop sort of um, uh, made their customers pay dearly for this stuff. At the time, uh, you know, you might find a book um, making the movies by Ernest Dench, for example, from 1915, and it might be priced at twenty four ninety five, which doesn't sound like much today, but when new books were selling for two ninety eight, five ninety eight, you know, it was a considerable piece of change. Um, that said, some of that promise never quite came to fruition because as more and more new film books came into existence, I'm not sure that the market for the the early film books ever quite caught up, you know, so I've been able not recently, but you know, a number of years ago I got that copy of Making the Movies for twenty four ninety five, which by nineteen eighty five was a bargain. Um yeah. but I couldn't have afforded it in nineteen sixty three, you know. Right, right. Do you want to pick up a con the, the the cinema catalog and just, just describe this to us? Because this is really I, I think this is really the, the, the heart of, of, of Milton Gitt's work to a large degree. Well, this one is over five hundred pages. Uh this is their second full catalog. They started with little, you know, folders, brochures. Um, the first catalog, I think, came out in 1964, and this one was a few years later. Um, um, and I, you know, you'd never see a catalog like this today with the internet. Um, and I'm not sure it paid off because they never did another one after this one. <coughs> but 
Um, it contains, you know, uh, listings of available books, magazines, posters, still photos, um, and other ephemera. Um, I remember in the 80s, I was going through the catalog, and I asked Mike Hawks, who was employed there at the time, do, do you still have any of this stuff? And he says, I don't know, what are you looking for? And I pointed out some biograph uh, pay vouchers from 1913. <laughs> and, you know, which had been in the catalog by then for 20, 25 years. And, and he said, well, you know, I don't know, I, we have a box of stuff around here. <laughs> so it was a Saturday morning, and, and it was, um, you know, it was busy in the store. And they kept saying, well, wait, we'll get it, wait, we'll get it. And they finally brought out this box. Um, and the biograph pay vouchers were indeed in it. Nobody had touched them in, in all those years. Um, but the box was, you know, you went, you blew into it in this cloud of dust. What, what else was in this box? Well, the, the thing that, uh, I mean, I, I got the bi biograph vouchers, but what, what was in there that, um, I found most fascinating is there was this scrapbook-like thing, and I opened it up, and it, the scrapbook belonged to Sidney Alcott, who was an early film director, and interleaved in the pages were a dozen letters from Frank Marion, who was the president of the Calum Company, um, beginning with, Dear Sid, I'm glad you like my idea of shooting Bible stories in the sight of the original, uh, to good luck, you're fired. Uh, uh, and it was a complete history, at least from Marion's perspective, of the making of From the Manger to the Cross, which was one of the early American feature films shot in the Middle East. And um, uh, being a film editor, I was, you know, often flush and often not so, depending on whether I was working or not. Um, and I... You know, I looked at this thing, and I, I sort of had to have it, and because uh, one of the things that was in it was a, a letter saying, you know, Los Angeles in 1912, Los Angeles is no longer the place to take pictures in that it used to be, because everything costs so much more out there. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, I folded it up, and I took it up to the front counter and showed it to Phil, and I said, "How much for this?" and he came back with what is smart business if you're selling, but which always drives collectors you know, crazy is, well, what do you think it's worth? <laughs> <clears throat> and so my philosophy in, in this kind of thing is to offer the highest realistic price that I can afford to pay. Right. And... I said, with a question mark at the end, 250 And he sat there, and he went through it, and he went through it, and he went through it, and he said, for you, I'll let you have it for that. And I think it was largely because I'd been a customer for so many years, that, that and he knew it would be appreciated. I think one of the things... I'm, I'm so glad you got it, by the way. I've been holding my breath for like 90 seconds. 
Um, I think one of the things that, that is, is true of the whole history of the store under the Lubavisky's um, is that it was a, it was a tough store to go into. I mean, the family was often screaming at each other and I, I think I remember this as a child. I remember, I remember there being drama and, between and and they also screamed at their customers. I mean, they just you know if if they didn't like you, they'd kick you out of the store. And it was unlike any retail experience I'd ever had before. Uh, they, uh, but that said, I think they all appreciated people who um, liked and appreciated and knew the value of what they were trying to uh, purvey. And, um, you know, I, I never had any problem with them. And I, uh, I remember Milt very well. He had, was bald and had uh, black um, horn rim type glasses and he was east coast abrupt but he was he was always very cordial to me um but you know i went in i looked if i wanted it i bought it i never asked for a discount occasionally they would give me a discount but i never asked for one um when i was had been a customer for 40 years they gave me a free book um (laughs) which you know, it's a nice gesture. It wasn't, uh, and I didn't take advantage. I didn't get an expensive book. But um, um, how did how did how was it agreed upon that you'd have been a customer for forty years? You had a, a ledger account. No, I I just you know I told Mike and Phil, uh, who was running the store at the time, that I the first time I'd come in was in nineteen sixty three. They took my word for it. It wasn't you know like, <laughs> uh, and. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I remembered it as 1963. I suppose it could have been 1962 or 1964, <laughs> but it was around that time. Uh, I'd hate to think that I cheated him out of a year before they gave me the book. <laughs> God bless you. So I just, I, I'd like to just wrap this up. I really want you, for the people listening, because it's it's gone and it's. Larry Edmonds is still there, but what, when I say it's gone, I mean the book culture of Hollywood Boulevard is gone, and it's been gone for some time. I mean, I, at the age of 46, barely in the early 80s, as a, as a young boy, remember vestiges of these stores. Would you mind, just as we, as, we, as we step away from this, to just give us a sense of Hollywood Boulevard on a Saturday morning in the late 1960s, Maybe the day you found that scrapbook, just what was what what was what was a Saturday morning looking for collectible books on Hollywood Boulevard like? Well, uh, before we go on to that, if I may, oh yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, you know, at, at some point, and this would have been in the late sixties or early seventies, uh, Milt and Git got divorced, and Milt oh. went to live in Paris, and the store reverted to. Uh, Git and the two brothers, um, 
and uh, they uh, maintained ownership uh, until both Din and Phil died, and then Git sold the store to Jeff Mantor, who had been their longtime book buyer, uh, who is the current operator of Larry Edmonds Bookshop. God, God bless Jeff. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, Hollywood Boulevard in the 60s wasn't that different from today in that it sort of collected grungy people. Uh, there was probably a little more of a vestige of old Hollywood. Uh, when I first started going there, there was a, a greeter, um, sort of like the guy down in Laguna, who... Um, uh, walked the boulevard. I don't know that he'd ever been in pictures, but he dressed like Buffalo Bill, and he was a fixture on the boulevard. Um, but you know, by the by, the later sixties, um, the hippies and the uh, and the drug culture came to town, and um, I think all of these things sort of existed side by side. I, I think the 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 closest analogy I would say is Larry Edmonds Bookshop and Musso and Franks. You know mm-hmm. the the vestiges of the old Hollywood. Yeah. They're still there. There was just more of it then, but the ambiance was every bit as crazy and weird as as it's always been. Per- I, at least I say as it's always been. It's probably since uh, the red car disappeared because yeah. Hollywood Boulevard used to be. Uh, a fairly elegant shopping district. Uh, uh, the, the Fifth Avenue of the West yeah. by 1930. Uh, but by the time the red car disappeared, uh, that went away and you started getting more of you know, the junk shops and memorabilia shops and, and t-shirt shops. And um, It's probably the only place in the world where you can get five t-shirts for $10. You know, <laughs> And I would take advantage of it if I wore T-shirts, but I don't. <laughs> okay, so so I want you, I want you to leave us with with a closing thought on on this bookshop, which is which is still there, just holding its own, and it's just such a rich heritage behind it of all the other shops that have passed. Just what is what is one thing you want us to think about? Well, I mean, for me, as a collector. Uh, of not only movie books but movie photos and other memorabilia um, it's sort of like a second home I mean uh, there probably isn't a week that goes by that I haven't been in there I don't always buy but I've known the the people and the employees um, for years and um, so you know if it were to go away it would be like losing a family friend or a relative, um, it's not as densely packed with rare stuff as it once was. Um, but Jeff is branching out and, and going into acquiring more memorabilia. Um, yeah. and his strong suit was always the book part of it, and the book part of it is sort of what's dying on the vine with Amazon and you know, I mean, Larry Edmonds and and the Pickwick used to have standing orders from the studios when new books came out. They just buy them automatically, you know, and, right. and send a messenger over, and uh, and that's pretty much gone now. Um, but Jeff is holding it on there, and uh, I think doing 
pretty well, considering the conditions of the book market in general. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it's just remarkable that this shop has lasted all this time. On the other hand, uh, you know, it's it's also evolved over the years. It didn't start as a movie-related bookstore. Um, and so it may yet evolve into something else in the future, but uh, for the moment it's what I've remembered for the last, you know, 50-some-odd years. Perfect. You you did it. You did it. I want to thank you, Bob, and... We'll, ha- we'll 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 pick another topic about Hollywood and we'll and we'll come back. Okay. Looking forward to it. My name is Ed Rosenthal and I'm in the LA Athletic Club and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Kimball, Jeff, uh, we're here in the Ornithology Hall at the Natural History Museum, and I would like both of you, Kimball, you'll start, both of you to introduce yourselves, and then we'll jump, jump into the deep end. Yeah, my name's Kimball Garrett. I'm the Ornithology Collections Manager at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. I've been here for something like 34 years now. Perfect. Okay, and Jeff? I'm Jeff Chapman. I'm the Manager of Interpretation and Training here at the Natural History Museum. I've only been here for about a year and a few months, um, but before that I worked with the National Audubon Society and other groups uh, working in conservation here in Los Angeles. Perfect. Okay, so this is, we're, we, we, this is exciting. We're, doing two, we're interviewing both of you at once. It's very exciting. Kimball, we're going to start with you. We're here today to talk about Vox's Swifts. So, uh, and, and, and Jeff, we're going we're gonna to segue to you because of your work with interpretation to bringing people to roosting sites in downtown Los Angeles, which is a very iconic and important migration phenomenon. So, Kimball, uh, we're sitting in front of a, a beautiful collection of specimen of these birds. Why don't you just start to tell us about these, uh, these creatures? So, Voxus whips are aerial feeders. They get all of their food by by spending their day on the wing catching tiny insects, sometimes spiders. Believe it or not, there's spiders floating around in the air too and and other arthropods in the air. Uh, They're highly migratory and they nest in old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest, so from southeast Alaska, uh, a few into the mountains of central California. So they nest to the north of us here in Los Angeles and almost all of them winter down in uh, southern Mexico, Central America. So Los Angeles is on their migratory pathway both in spring and fall. Here in L.A., we'll get large numbers that pass through in spring, primarily from about the middle of April through late May, with a peak at the end of April and the first week or so of May. And then in fall, um, many birds come back through here. In fact, many more because it includes the year's production of young as well. And that movement is primarily from about mid-September through about mid-October with a peak at the end of September and early October. When their numbers are largest, depending on weather conditions, uh, depending on on how well they've been feeding on their migration route and so on, huge numbers will often gather in Los Angeles and they need a place to roost for the night. 
and they've found building shafts, um, artificial structures, to be a perfect substitute for what they would naturally have used, which are old, hollow, hollowed-out trees. Perfect. Perfect. Um, you have a, a letter. Do you want to? Would you mind reading us the letter from from the Broadway Trade Center from 1991? I think it's yeah, it's right there. Oh, no, it's in there somewhere. That's okay. Yeah, it's a great letter. Yeah, well, I've been um, in communication with the building managers there at the Broadway Trade Center who were, I think, concerned about the impact that these huge numbers, and we're talking sometimes up to perhaps 20,000 birds roosting in their building shaft would would be having on, um, you know, the, the... hygiene of their building and the, you know, the parking lot attendant outside the building probably wasn't too pleased about all these birds which not only eat insects but they then process them and, and relieve <laughs> themselves of the parts they can't eat and so I, um, I just found in my files a copy of a letter I had written to the building manager way back in the 1990s and that letter is here somewhere. I will just, before we, before we, yeah, there we go. The Broadway Trade Center is at 8th and Broadway. It's the old hamburgers department store. It's, as, as we speak, it's being remodeled. It's a really important building for uh, Kim and I, emotionally downtown, and for all of downtown Los Angeles. So, so please give us, give us the date on this letter and, and read it. I think it's fantastic. So this is dated April 26, 1991, and uh, Mr. Doan is the building manager, and I just start out, dear Mr. Doan, I certainly understand your predicament of being inundated by roosting Vox's swifts, and I hope I can offer some suggestions to deal with the problem. I estimated between 5,000 and 10,000 birds entering the building shaft on the evening of 25 April, that would be 1991, and the magnitude of your problem is clearly enormous. Now, of course, I'm calling it a problem. To me, it's a wonderful opportunity and a great thing for the birds, but it all depends on whose ox is being gored, I suppose. But, um, and I go on in the, first, the next paragraph to remind him that these are native birds. They're protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And in fact, we now know that Vox's swift is a species of, of some conservation concern, as are almost all bird species which rely on old-growth forests for nesting. And also, I think, because of their vulnerability as migrants, because such huge numbers gather into very few um, yeah. large concentrations, and that just increases the vulnerability factor. So I suggested that if he really had to discourage the birds from roosting in the... Uh, in that shaft that there's certain, you know, configurations of a grate he could put over the top that would keep the birds out. But please don't do it at night when they're all in there because then they can't get out again. <laughs> and, um, and I told him that the migration basically peaks from mid-April to mid-May, so it's a seasonal problem. It isn't something he's going to have to deal with in those numbers year-round. And, and I end the letter with, um, well... One of the reasons I called you today in the letter was a follow-up was to see if it might be possible to salvage a series of dead swifts from the roost site. And I go on to point out I have all the necessary fish and wildlife and fish and game permits and so on. And as you can see, this collection of swifts we have in front of us, and there, there are many, many dozens we have from downtown Los Angeles, are all salvage birds that were found dead. So we weren't going out and, and blasting them out of the air. These are birds that had probably collided with windows or with each other or whatever it happened to be. And... Um, now, I'd, I'd probably follow up by saying I don't recall any follow-up to this letter, but, you know, clearly it was a concern. And we did later, in, in this is 1997, meet with uh, who the assistant building manager at that time, a gentleman named John Swift, 
and uh, we got a little more, uh, the, believe it or not, that was his name, uh, we got a little more information from him and he from us about the SWIFT situation. Perfect. Do you want to uh, walk, uh, I, I know this is audio, but we have some beautiful specimens in front of us. Do you want to just sort of talk us through the, the, the physiology of this, of this bird? Yeah, so SWIFTs are... Again, very long birds with very long, narrow wings. They're aerial. They spend all their time in the air. In fact, they can they can spend all day and night in the air. With it's suspected they could even sleep for brief periods on the wing. Um, the Voxa swift is an entirely dark uh, swift with no real strong patterning. We've got a much more common species year-round here. Not not more numerous, but more frequently seen called the white-throated swift, which nests under a lot of our freeways and so on. And they're much more heavily patterned. One distinctive thing about Vox's swifts, they're in the genus Keytura, which literally means spine tail, and each tail feather has a small, sharp no. spine projecting from it, which probably helps them cling to vertical surfaces in their roost sites or their nest sites, which would naturally be in hollowed-out, old-growth trees. Uh, they've got a, very, a tiny bill but a big, wide gape, so that's great for grabbing arthropod prey out of the air, but, but again, very, very long, narrow wings. They're closely related to hummingbirds, although their whole style of flight and ecology is very, very different, but swifts and hummingbirds are close relatives. Uh, these are tiny birds. They're less than five inches long, and yeah. they weigh about 16 grams, which is a pretty, pretty small bird. That, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Um, maybe just we can segue into Jeff by maybe you could just tell us what you know about why they like these chimneys, these giant chim uh, exhaust shafts on these these bo beautiful Beaux-Arts buildings in downtown Los Angeles. Voxus whips, of course, are, are close relatives of a bird that's familiar to anybody from eastern North America called the chimney swift. And chimney swifts are named for obvious reasons right. that they have found human-built chimneys to be a perfect substitute for hollow trees and a great nest site and a, and a roost site. So voxes do essentially the same thing. We see chimney swifts here on rare occasions. They're a little bigger and darker than voxes. They sound slightly different. Uh, the voxes gives a very rapid, high-pitched sort of chippering like an insect. The, the chimney swift I've heard likened to a squeaky bicycle wheel. It's a little slower and, and louder, but um, anyway, the, ecologically, they're very, very similar. Um, Huge. The, the migratory birds, I think we get so many here in L.A., partly because it's a great convergence of topography and habitat. So the Los Angeles River bends yeah. around Elysian and Griffith Parks. The river is, is just a hatchery for lots of insects. Yeah. And then the way the winds hit the uh, slopes there and probably bring these clouds of insects up higher is perfect foraging for swifts. So you'll see sometimes hundreds, if not thousands, of voxes swifts, as well as swallows, which also feed on the wing on insects um, up in that stretch of the L.A. River from about the 110 freeway up to the 134 freeway. That's the biogeography of L.A. is measured in freeways. And so they, they like the five between the 110 and the 134. But um, they like those slopes and hillsides. And all those birds that gather and feed have to roost somewhere for the night. Um, or at least they seem to prefer to. Like I said, they could probably just keep flying all night. And building shafts provide the microenvironment they need uh, that keeps them out of the elements, out of the right. weather. Uh, they're very social birds. Um, not that they interact socially, but they key in on each other and look for uh, communal roof sites that will accommodate lots of birds. And so they have a lot of behaviors, and, and I'm sure Jeff will talk about it, before they go to roofs that, that kind of help them find each other and yeah. gather together. And it's just you couldn't have designed a better roof site than a large vertical building shaft with with 
kind of rough walls yeah. that they can cling to with their very sharp claws and, and use these tail spines for, for clinging to the sides. Perfect. Perfect. We'll, um, we'll come back to check in with you once Sounds we're done good. with Jeff. But thank you for that great introduction. I'm going to swivel my chair. Jeff, do you, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to us again? Because it's been a couple minutes, okay. and, and we'll jump into this. Sure. Um, again, I'm Jeff Chapman. I'm the manager of interpretation and training here at the Natural History Museum. Perfect. Okay. And so we're gonna, you've been involved in, in leading groups of people to observe these roosting habits of Vox's Swifts in, in the chimneys downtown. So it's my favorite topic, so go. Yeah, so uh, you know, it kind of all started for me um, in the you know 2006 or so when I first, as Kimball described, I started seeing large masses of Vox's Swifts flying above um, open space in Los Angeles uh, in the city of L.A., uh, and I was kind of mesmerized by them. And I had no idea that they kind of performed this nightly ritual in downtown. You know, I just knew they were migratory birds and they were passing through and, you know, foraged on these insects in the in the air. And it wasn't until 2010 that I was contacted by a, a man um, from Washington State named Larry Switters, who, you know, kind of sounded like this fanatic who was calling me and telling me about these birds going into these chimneys and did I know where they were? Could I build a chimney? all of these things, and I'm like, uh, this is just another one of those crazy calls. Um, but lo and behold, you know, a few months later, um, I spoke to him again, and he had connected with an artist who was living down um, kind of at the Nabisco bakery building area. Down. Where, where we start our bus tours, yes, 7th okay. and Mateo, yes, yep. Nabisco, so, Nabisco so, Lofts. So the, the, the Nabisco bakery was one of the roosting sites historically, and this man had watched them do this. He was, you know, like I said, an artist, not necessarily a bird watcher, but was mesmerized by seeing this. And when that building was converted and renovated, supposedly they took out that chimney. So they lost that roosting site. We're, we're going to yell at Evol about that one. <laughs> we're, 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 we know the problem. We're, we're, we're going to get Evol to put the chimney back. Oh, okay. Uh, good. That sounds like a good move. Um, but, uh, you know, this man was kind of on a search for, for, for these birds, and he located them doing this roosting at Fifth and Broadway in the Chester Williams building in 2010, yeah. what appeared to be another, you know, what I would call an abandoned building or a derelict building um, with these birds doing this. And I can remember getting out of the Pershing Square Red Line Station uh, and coming up that escalator and seeing the entire sky full of birds. Yeah, 2010 was a very good year for that, as I remember, too. So that was the spring, and we'd go out there. And, you know, based on, you know, Guidance from Kimball and others, you know, we estimated on some of those nights we were getting 20,000 birds. And, you know, it started out small. There'd be like 10 of us sitting on top of uh, Joe's Auto Park parking garage at 440 South Broadway, um, yeah. you know, kind of sneaking up the elevator through the mall there to get to the rooftop. Oh, yeah. uh, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a famous, uh, famous trip for Kim and I, too. Yeah, sneaking into that building. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that elevator. Um, oh, yeah, that elevator. It's gone now. It's. It's yeah, <laughs> that's probably a good move. Um, but you know, I I was working with um, the National Audubon Society at the time, and my whole goal was to make sure that people were aware that LA is a biodiversity hotspot. It's a very special place for wildlife, uh, plants, and animals, and people, um, and trying to connect people with that native uh, wildlife that's here. And I couldn't think of a, a more you know kind of 
great illustration of that, of being in downtown LA, you know, on a hot fall evening, you know, on top of a parking garage, it's dirty, um, you know, and watching these birds do this. And I just had this idea of getting more people down there. And, you know, we put on events every fall and spring. Um, you know, sometimes we had upwards of 200 people on top of that, that roof. Uh, and what I loved about it was it was an LA thing. Um, you know, we had a very diverse group of people that were enjoying that, um, spectacle, that wildlife spectacle, you know, um, and we had people up there picnicking in this dirty parking lot and watching these birds. And, you know, I couldn't help but think that where they do this in Portland, Oregon, at Chapman Elementary School, you know, people are out on a nice green lawn with their picnics and they've ridden their bikes there. You know, it's, it feels safe. But here in downtown, we're hearing sirens go by, helicopters are flying over, and we're watching, you know, thousands of Vox's Swifts go into these chimneys and peregrine falcons are picking off, you know, yeah. individuals as they're going in and people are cheering and, you know, <laughs> booing and, you know, it's, it was just a really inspiring thing to see people, you know, interested in, in, in nature in the heart of downtown LA. I love it. I love it. Do you, um, is there anything you want to talk about your experiences with this that we haven't touched upon before we, we go back to Kimball and wrap this up? There, there are no wrong answers. Well, I, you know, I think like Kimball, you know, his letter to the building manager, we, we did the same thing with the owner of the Chester Williams building. Because Miss, Miss, Mr. Helen, yes. Well, we didn't do it with Mr. Helen. But Greg, Greg Martin. Greg Martin. Greg Martin. God yeah. bless him. Yeah. Um, you know, one night we went out there, and I was with my daughter, and, you know, from the time that she was a baby, I had been taking her out there, um, and the chimney was covered. And I watched these birds just circling above that parking lot. And my daughter and I both cried. We were the only ones up there. And just kind of like these amazing animals that are making this thousand-mile migration dependent on this this location for their survival and kind of this, this stepping stone in their journey. Um, and, you know, we have property managers and others that have property to protect, of course, but also there's, there's got to be a little space for wildlife and a lot of, a little space for, for nature to be able to thrive. Um, so that was really sad. Um, and I was, I was bummed we couldn't come out to an agreement with, um, with that owner. Um, the birds moved over to the spring arts tower, you know, contacted their building manager and, and their building manager said, our owner thinks that this is a, a, a sign of good luck and we want to do everything we can to keep these birds here. Um, you know, so that was kind of the other side of the coin uh, and kind of continuing to see those birds migrating through. Haven't seen them in, in this, last, this last spring, didn't see large numbers of them, but hopefully this fall we'll be, be looking for them downtown and finding where they're roosting and, and hopefully they're thriving still. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to sign off with you in just a second. Kimball, I'm going to swivel my chair around. So um, you've had a couple minutes to think about if there's anything else you, you'd like to add about these beautiful creatures. Well, I certainly second what Jeff has said about making people aware of yeah. not only the spectacle of the Swifts, but that as representing biodiversity here in L.A. And you, despite what you see around you, a huge metropolitan area, we really live in one of the most biodiverse places, you know, in North America for sure, and one of the most biodiverse large cities in the world. So it's, when I first started looking at Swifts down outside the Broadway Trade Center and I'd go there at night and try and count and figure out what was going on, 
I'd see people walk by, and most people were oblivious. They had no idea there were 10,000 birds circling over their heads. And most everybody else I would hear would say, Murcielagos, or are those bats, or what's going on? And Because they, they would right. mistake them for right. bats. And I'd say, no, if they were bats, they'd be coming out at this time of day instead <laughs> of going back in. Um, so it's great people to become aware of this. Uh, and, and the swift numbers really do vary from year to year, and a lot of it has to do with weather conditions and things. So, for example, in spring, we seem to get the most when we have a series of weather fronts that kind of back them up and keep them here. But with the way the climate has been in recent years, we just haven't had the weather fronts, the weather patterns. And I yeah. think in some ways it might be good for the birds. It means they could just kind of move through unimpeded on their migration. But unfortunately also we're probably seeing a reduction in worldwide populations just because of the continuing loss of habit, breeding habitat and old growth forests and things. But, you know, they're not, they're not disappearing. They're not going away soon. So I, I do expect that we'll get some... some more really impressive large migrations here. And, and I, my, my dream is that we can build a building shaft that's dedicated to the Vox's Swifts and, you know. We're going we're, 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 we're to make, we're going to get Mr. Helen, Greg Martin's boss, to do this. And, and make sure. This is, this is my, I need a project. Mr. <laughs> Helen likes child. me. Greg told me. <laughs> okay, great. So we're going we're gonna to get a meeting with Mr. Helen when he's back in town. Good. Later in the year. I'd like everybody okay. to see them. That'd be wonderful. I'm all for that. You both think I'm joking, and I'm not. <laughs> Good. So, perfect. Perfect wrap-up. Kimball, I want to thank you. I want you to sign, uh, thank us and sign off, and then Jeff will, will switch to you. <laughs> well, thank you for letting us talk about a, a topic near and dear to us. And um, this is Kimball Garrett. I'm signing off. Perfect. And Jeff? Um, yeah, I appreciate you coming to our neck of the woods, and um, thanks for highlighting these amazing birds. They're really special ambassadors of uh, nature right in the heart of the city. So it's Jeff Chapman signing off as well. Thank you both very much, gentlemen. My name is Ansley Davies, and I'm here at City Terrace Park in northeast Los Angeles, and you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our latest podcast of You Can't Eat the Sunshine for the month, the month of September 2016. Our guests this week were Ah, Bob. He said this week. Oh, our guests this month. It's a monthly thing, sorry. Our guests this month, month of September 2016, Bob Burchard. He is a Hollywood historian was a Hollywood historian and preservationist. God rest his soul. He was a great guy, and um, it's a real loss to the Hollywood preservation community and, and intellectual community that he's gone. Uh, our other two guests this week were, were Kimball Garrett. I said week. Oh, Kimball Garrett and Jeff Chapman. Kimball is director of the Ornithology Collection at the Natural History Museum, Mist History Museum. Jeff is the director of interpretation, and training, also at the Natural History Museum. They talked to us about Vox's Swifts, which are my favorite bird downtown. So, we like to hear from you. We like feedback. Uh, feedback loop can consist of many different vehicles and formats. Kim, why don't you bring us up to speed on feedback? Well, of course, one of the best ways you can communicate with us is to get on the bus. We do give bus tours. 
Esoteric. That's the name of our tour company. And we do these free walking tours after the Lava Sunday Salon. It's always great to hear from our listeners who uh, come aboard on those events. You can also send us an email through the contact link at www.esoteric.com or at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com. If you're inclined to uh, put a review on iTunes, we are always appreciative of people letting other listeners know they're digging it. And that's pretty much how you can get in touch with us. Please do. Great. Okay, Kim, this is the segment of the podcast as we round that last corner and come into the home stretch where you tell us about upcoming bus tours. Okie dokie. Well, let's start the month of September with a rather occasional bus tour. It's sort of a crossover. It's a literary tour and a cinema tour. It's called The Birth of Noir, James M. Cain's Southern California Nightmare. And it follows James M. Cain, New Yorker editor, from his earliest days in Southern California where he started eavesdropping on people down in skid row bars and kind of hooked on to the notion that the voice of the American roughneck is something he could use in his fiction. He ends up developing a whole new style of pulp fiction, the hard-boiled school, that uh, turns into a wonderful cinematic vehicle. The movies that we focus on are Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce. We go to locations associated with these films. It's It's a lovely tour. I really enjoy it. Then we get into a little series on the crime bus. September the 17th, it's Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, murders and downtown street life and freak shows and B-girls and more murders. And uh, we'll even be talking about things that happened in the 1970s. Yes, sometimes contemporary murders, even in the 1980s, make it into our storytelling. So, And some beautiful interiors of old turn-of-the-century hotels. Blood and Dumplings on September the 24th is a crime bus tour of the San Gabriel Valley, which includes some truly unhinged tales and the site of my favorite derelict tourist attraction, Gay's Lion Farm, and the man from Mars Bandit and other fun things. Many fun things. Uh, that brings us into October and our newest crime bus tour. It's called Hollywood with an exclamation point. Hollywood, it is where I grew up, and I've got some really delightful and weird stories to share, including the Capitol Records carpool killing, which is a story I like to tell a lot, and um, we'll go to some really beautiful sites as well. Wild Wild West Side is October the 8th. We brought it back from the dead. Yes, our West Side crime bus, it's mostly cults, child abuse, and just complete insanity. Um... The West Side being, you know, so proper and well-behaved, we have to bring it back down a notch and remember the good old days when you couldn't walk down the street in Venice without being asked to join a cult. So we promise we won't make you join a cult, but we'll show you where they got into lots of trouble on the wild, wild West Side. Do do you remember when someone thought we were a cult? Oh, yeah. We did this tour for a private party once, and Richard was leading. It was, it was an, an all-female group, and Richard was leading the group down a very that's, narrow... That's, that's not the story I was thinking of, but you can finish it. Oh, that's a different story. Uh, he was leading... People always think we're a cult. He was leading the group down a very narrow sidewalk, and I was in the back, and we wanted to keep everyone together because night had fallen. And so I heard what a man who passed the entire group on the sidewalk said as we finished, because he said it to the last women in the group, and it was, is this a love cult? Is he their leader? And I said yes. Okay, a few more tours. 
Echo Park, Book of the Dead, October 15th, another of the newer Crime Bus tours. Uh, we'll visit Sister Amy Semple McPherson's house. We'll talk about some really chilling and curious and bizarre, uh, I guess we don't call it East Side, Echo Park, Silver Lake, that, that sort of part of the world, crimes, um, the Batman, Lover in the Attic case, a really sad tale of a wronged wife along Carroll Avenue, and uh, Hillside Strangler, which is a really, really heavy we case. Open case. Yeah, we opened the, open the tour with that. And the more I've read about that, just the more completely chilling it is to me that I had no idea when I first moved to Los Angeles as a young person how many serial killers were active in my neighborhood, and I was completely fearless, and I understand... When you moved to Los Angeles? Well, I I came back when I was 11. Okay. And I just, I had no idea. And, you know, reading up about just... You know, I never was interested in getting in someone's car. I didn't like people, but I'm glad of that. (laughs) Some of the things I've read about that was going on on Sunset Boulevard, which was where I lived, uh, definitely gives me chills now. Okay, so that gets us through the crime bus. We're going to wrap up October with uh, Raymond Chandler's L.A. in a Lonely Place, and that is just a beautiful tour of Art Deco locations that inspired Chandler as a young man when he was still in the oil business and then as a screenwriter in the 40s. And then skipping ahead, we have some other tours in between, uh, including the Black Dahlia Tour Halloween weekend, which I do expect to sell out soon. Um, At the end of November, we're going to do Richard's birthday bus. He's already hinted at that, that Long Beach is where we're going, Long Beach and the South Bay, because we'll be checking out the Hot Chaw Cafe. Richard's birthday bus is a once a year, never to be repeated excursion that does include birthday cake. And if you've if you're one of those people listening who's taken all our tours or you just want to take a tour that you know you'll never be able to take again and you this want to help it. Richard celebrate his birthday, you it. want to get on that bus. We have some extra special surprises, some L.A. history that you've never heard anywhere else. Yeah. 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 Surprises. That's what we specialize in. The birthday bus is, is an opportunity for us to do things that would never make sense. <laughs> It's a regularly scheduled tour, but the people who love L.A. history and oddity really want to drink up. So, drink up. We'll see you on the bus. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Thank you for that great wrap-up, bringing us home. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between. Sal-